All right, so let's go to God, the only place we can go, and ask for his blessing, especially as we're looking to his word and expecting him to speak to us. So let's do that. Oh, Father, we're so thankful to sit in this place and worship you by the prayers that we pray, songs we sing, the scriptures, your words read over us, the confessions that we confess of our sin and our need of you and also of who you are. Um, We do this because you have brought us from death to life, because you've given us faith. You've counted the works of Christ to us, and we are your children. And so now we look to your word and anticipate you speaking to us. Your preacher needs strength, and your people need your spirit to help them hear your words. And so we look to you to help us in this time. And we pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So if you're not there, you can flip to Psalm 146. And just by way of introduction, I, uh, I don't have much of an introduction. So what I want to do is explain how I want to preach this psalm. Um, and here's what I was thinking. As I've studied this psalm, and as it's my duty before God and to you all to explain this, to preach Christ from it, to meditate upon it. And in that way, we commune with God by faith in his word. And I want this to be our personal prayer and praise as we work through this psalm. And so my outline uh, is four prayers. And those are that our souls would praise God. The second one is that our ultimate security and confidence would never be put in people or ourselves. The third prayer is that our hope would always remain in the Lord and that we would be affected in many ways by who God is and what he is like. And the fourth prayer from this psalm is a prayer of praise. And we praise God that he is our God and that he will reign forever. And so with all of that said, let's look to the psalm and let's pray together as I preach. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners, and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We thank God for his word. And to begin our time in verses 1 and 2, this is our prayer. We pray, Lord, that our souls would praise you. David says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Right? So he's talking about his innermost being. He's stirring up his soul. It's kind of like Psalm 42 where David says, why... Is my soul so downcast? Hope in the Lord. He's telling his soul to hope in the Lord. So it's a similar phrasing here. And in verse 2, 
David is telling himself what he's going to do as long as he has life. He's telling himself, I will praise the Lord. He's stirring up his own soul. This whole psalm is this process of David stirring up his soul to praise God. Now let's think for a minute. It's very easy for us to stir others up, right? That's why we need each other in the church, to stir one another up to love and good works, to remember the truth. But think about how often as brothers and sisters in the Lord that we stir one another up in times of, dif- times of difficulty. We say things like, your sins have been forgiven. Jesus has washed them away, sister. God is good, brother. He's near to the brokenhearted. Don't lose heart, dear friend. Christ has overcome the world. Look, I know this is really terrible, and I'm sorry, but Christ has you. Your Father loves you, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We say things like, look, you know this is wrong, so let's get out of this terrible mindset. And like the prodigal, let's return to the feast of God's restoring love. We say these types of things to stir one another up. But again, it's easy to do that to one another. It's so hard to do that to ourselves when we're just seemingly buried alive in discouragement or when the road ahead just seems so dark and painful. It's hard to do this to ourselves. I know that you've experienced times where you feel like your soul just isn't that hopeful in the Lord. I know that we've all had experiences where the hope of this sinless, God-filled city that is prepared for us when this life ends just doesn't affect much in us. What about the times that doubt creeps in from our own sinful flesh or the enemy seems to be attacking from all sides and you don't see much of a point in being alive? You ever look at how much ruin sin has brought? Consider how we're all kind of just trying to manage the damage, but we can't really seem to fix much. We feel like, God, what in the world are we to do? Or maybe in seasons of frustration and doubt, you look to yourself in the mirror and you're asking, maybe God really isn't in any of this. But it's in those times that you know that you have been brought from death to life and you're no longer a slave to sin, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And because you know the truth about God, the best thing for you to do is to praise the Lord. You know this. You know the Lord is infinitely good and wise and righteous and holy and perfect and loving in every way. And so we show up here together because our God loves us and Christ is our only hope. Together, all of us, with our depression, with our doubts, with the painful attacks of the enemy, with the hatred of the world towards us, with all of our unanswered questions, we stir up our downcast souls and we remember Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is with us here to give us what we need to sustain us, to use the truths and communicate them to us where we hear them and we feel them and we believe them. And so we engage our minds while we're here as best that we can and our fickle flesh will will enable us. And we praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Right, so our hearts and our minds engage with the truth and we sing and we play instruments and we pray to our faithful God who has saved us and who will never leave us. 
Yes, we worship with our minds and with our hearts and with our affections or the lack thereof because we are his children and because it's good for us, because we're freed from death. And this is what life looks like. We're crushed by the law when we come here. And we're given Christ in the gospel through word and sacrament each week. And so this point, number one, Lord, we pray as we stir ourselves up that we, that our souls would praise you. Before moving on to verse three, just to briefly talk about even in our personal lives, in our inner spirit, we feast upon what we've been given here on Sundays. We take this with us through the week. We even ask friends to remind us, man, remind me how good God is in Christ, because I just seem to not believe it that much today. My soul is downcast. We remind ourselves of, our, of the hope we have during the day, right? It doesn't, we don't really worry about what, what we feel like doing, right? We call this to mind. If we wait on what we feel like doing, we're never going to call anything to mind. We're just going to be on autopilot. So we call these things to mind while you're on the way to work or while we're on the lunch break. Man, Your cross, Lord, is my refuge. Your blood has washed away my sins. Your death is my assurance. Your life is my hope. Not my life, but your life is my hope. I was a slave, a rebel, an outcast, a stranger, but you've brought me near. So give me what I need to love you and love my family like I should. Help me. I'm depressed. I'm tired. I'm weary of life. Help me not be lazy at my job. We're stirring up our souls. And this may feel like a burden to us during the week because we're so lazy and because we're sinners. And we try to turn everything into earning God's favor. We just won't believe that it's been given to us and that he's never leaving us. God doesn't need us to do this. We need this for us. We need to stir ourselves up because it's good for us to remember who God is. This is the benefit of being a child of the king, is that we can stir ourselves up no matter how we feel, because God never changes. So moving on to verse 3 and verse 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. And so, Lord, we pray that our ultimate security and confidence would never be put in people or ourselves. So he says, put not your trust in princes. And this trust, is, it's identified with hope. It's security. Because of the object of our hope, we have confidence, security. Confidence that would produce reason to be bold or to feel safe. David is saying that he nor his people should look to kings or princes for the type of protection, justice, righteousness, and confidence that they all desire, that we all desire. He says, for life is one breath at a time. And as soon as that breath is gone and departs that person, so does his plans. Remember God's words in Genesis 3 when he tells Adam and Eve, he's talking to Adam that he's going to work the ground until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are fickle creatures. No matter how powerful, no matter how rich, we're all mortal. And as soon as breath leaves, so does that power. So does those plans. So does any hope anybody had in us. It's gone. But we all hope, though, right? Everyone in here hopes for something better. 
We put our hope in something, so we have hope, right? Hope isn't just something that we're given. We put our hope in something so that the future plans, we might have them, right? We hope in a friendship that it would bring us happiness or safety, right? So we put our hope in that person so that we have safety and all these things. Like, we just naturally do this, being alive. And so with our ability to hope, what we do is we put our hope in things that we can see. Yet no person or anything else that has been created is worthy of the type of hope that we end up hoping with. See, we need something that won't let us down. We need something that won't lie, that cannot lie. We need hope in something that transcends this cursed world. But again, we naturally slide and put this type of hope that I explained in a friendship. Like, look, I'm just trusting that we're going to have this mutual friendship and it's going to benefit both of us. And then there's this hope in God for eternity. But in our experience, they just start to slide together, right? And this hope, just we start to attach our security and our confidence and happiness and joy in life to what we see and experience. And so we just don't differentiate well between those two types of hope. For instance, consider how the feeling of safety in a friendship or in a marriage can just easily no longer be felt when things just aren't going well, or when we're devastated because we become each other's judge, because people who we once loved so much just let us down. How could they, we think? I was hoping that they wouldn't do this to me. We had such a great thing going. Life was so good. We said we would never do these kind of things to each other, right? And then safety just leaves. The confidence in, in just things that we thought just begins to kind of fade, we put so much hope in people and in things because they add to our life. We think we can achieve these things together. We have goals, and we just end up not getting those. And the stuff that was attached, the happiness, the joy, and the hope that was attached to receiving all those things fades away. Or maybe a friend or a spouse dies. So much of our identity, so much of what we value in life, so much of our hope in this life is wrapped up in this life. And that's the problem. We so easily get tunnel vision, right? We so easily get tunnel vision in our confidence in the present, right? Our reason to have joy is because of a person or an experience that our eyes can see or that our minds have dreamed of. For another example, when we're left to our natural experiences, we're always overwhelmed by anxiety and fear and hopelessness when we look at the events of the world. And we put our hope in a particular political party, hoping that they make you able to fix these things and we can again have this security. Again, I understand there's a difference, right, between this earthly trust and this heavenly trust, but we just stink at differentiating the two. They just mesh together. And again, we trust in, in a political party to do what is right, and this redemptive hope in God just begins to just collide together. And not only do we hope in other people, but we hope in ourselves. So much of our hope can be easily wrapped up in our identity. But the problem is that this philosophical identity is dictated by our gender, is dictated by what we do, how much money we have, how behaved our kids are, how organized I am, how better I am at something than another person, what type of job I have, how godlier I am than other people. The list goes on and on and on. 
that makes up our identity. And our hope and our reason to feel good, to be happy, to have joy, to have security, to have confidence in this life cannot be put in people or ourselves. As a matter of fact, if we do place our hope in these things, we don't have hope at all. We have zero confidence or security. None of these things gives us security or confidence or joy because all of our bodies are going to return to dust. None of these things offer resurrection. None of these things can restore us to a holy God. None of these things give us, um, none of these things can conquer death. And this is why salvation is found in, no, in none of these things. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. No mortal man is worthy of this type of hope. And so as children of God, where is our hope? I think we can often get in these mental patterns where we know that our hope is in God, right? And we, we know that eternity is secure and that God is faithful and all that's good. And then we essentially operate and correspond with this transcendent knowledge as if it's in the corner and, and that's a thing that's there and that's true, but it has absolutely zero to do with my experience right now. And we just kind of tuck that hope away. Like it doesn't really matter for us right now. But the scriptures proclaim to us that we who have hope in God are blessed. Not just future blessed, presently blessed. And get this, the reason that we're blessed is not the affectionate experience that we gain from having this hope or having this knowledge. The best part of hoping in God is God. Look with me at verse 5 through 9. Blessed is he who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner's feet free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In verse 5, this is what we learn about God. We learn that he's the God of Jacob, the one true and living God. Using the, the God of Jacob here, this is what David is doing. He's reminding Israel of their God. He's reminding Israel of the God of their fathers, the God who's always been, the God of the covenant, who promised the Savior, the God who puts on flesh and wrestles with Jacob and willingly loses. This is our God, Israel. Consider their forefather Jacob. And when they do that, they remember that theirs is the God of the tried believer. So in this time, David is saying, look, it's, we are not the ones who are going to put our hope in princes and in people of power. In this world, ours is the living and the true God, not some idol, not some created being, and not each other. This is the God who appeared before Moses, who led the tribes of Jacob out of Egypt, who through the wilderness and into the land he promised. And the name God of Jacob, what is communicated is that God is ready and he is able to help us in this present moment like he has in the past. But we remember his covenant and that a savior is coming and we have eternal hope. Verse 5. Blessed is he who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. He is a present help 
and he is an eternal hope. And in verse 6, what David communicates as he's stirring up his soul is not only am I not going to put my, my trust in any of that, right? We won't put our trust in people or ourselves. We're going to put our trust in the living and the true God, the creator. Verse 6 reminds us that he's not only living in the true God, but he is the creator. The God of Jacob is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. God said, let there be, and it was so. From nothing, everything became into existence by the eternal word of God. The trillions of stars in the sky, which he knows by name. The sun, the moon, every grain of sand on the beaches, every tree, every leaf, every insect, every animal came into being from our glorious, amazing, beautiful God. I mean, consider how... Consider animals and how majestic and powerful they are, from the smallest to the largest. Consider how from the dust God made man. From the dirt on the earth's surface, God formed man with its cardiovascular system, its musculoskeletal system, its gastrointestinal system, its urinary system, endocrine system, nervous system, lymphatic system, reproductive system, its skin. All this came from the dust by the power of our Creator. Your very heartbeat this morning is sustained by God Himself at this very moment. Let not our fears and our insecurities cause us to hope in mere mortals, but that our fears would be swallowed up in the almighty power of our awesome Father who created everything out of nothing. And we cannot do this for ourselves. We can't create this in ourselves. This is why we're being reminded of that this morning, and we're asking Him to do this as we stir ourselves up. And the end of verse 6, we learn that God is faithful, that He keeps faith forever. Faithful to what? Well, I'm glad you asked. After He made everything, what happened? God told Adam to keep the garden and not to eat of a certain tree, right? And if He did, He would die. So God let Adam, who represented all humanity, freely forsake what is good and disobey him. Adam failed and the curse of death fell on all of creation. And the chance for humanity to have fellowship with God and enter eternal life was gone because all of creation was cursed. There's no way that any of us are going to be holy enough to have a perfect restoring relationship with God. All who are born of man are born totally corrupt. So what did God do next? He came to them. He cursed the serpent. He promised a Savior would be born of woman who would crush the evil one, who would save the world, and who would earn eternal peace and blessedness for his people. That he would reconcile his people back to himself forever. Their sins would be washed away and God would remember them no more. That he would put his spirit within them and that they would be his people and that he would be their God. And this would all happen not because of what the people would do in their law keeping, but by grace as God would send a redeemer full of steadfast love and faithfulness to fulfill all righteousness. And he would never fail on any of the promises he ever made. He is true to who He is, and He is true to the relationship He puts Himself in. He is true to His covenants. No one can bring a charge against Him. He's faithful. Charles Spurgeon said, The Lord never dies. 
neither do his thoughts perish. His purpose of mercy, like himself, endures through all generations. Praise the Lord. Happy is the person, blessed is the person who by faith knows the Lord as his own. And this is exactly why God is what verse 7 through 9 communicates. In verse 7 through 9, we see God as the vindicator, the provider, the deliverer, the lover, and the helper. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. He watches over the sojourners and the widows and the fatherless, and he brings the way of the wicked to ruin. I want to hit on the end of verse 8 there. The Lord loves the righteous. If you remember in Psalm 36, it says, those who are upright in heart are those who know God. They're not righteous in and of themselves. What makes them upright in heart is that they know God, that God has made them his people and given him his law. So the righteous ones, those who are upright in heart, are the ones who know God. And they are the people who trust in him as, his, as their covenant God. But notice this list of the type of people that God loves. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the bowed down, the, so, the sojourners, the widows, the fatherless. These are the people that God loves. These are the righteous one that he loves. This certainly describes Israel. And these are the weak people from whom God is known as their God. And it is precisely what David is thinking about here to stir up his own soul to praise God. He is the help for the weak. Oh, Israel, our hope is not in princes, but our hope is in the one true living God who is our present help and our eternal hope. And this God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the God who crushed the enemies who enslaved and oppressed his people. The God who fed hungry people in the wilderness with manna from heaven. The God who lifted burdens off of his people. The God who leads the sojourners. The God who claimed strangers as his own. Why in the world did he did he claim Israel as his own? They had nothing to offer to him. They were the weakest, the smallest, the puniest. They were oppressed. They were the fatherless. They were weak. God claims the strangers as his own. And he gives help to the helpless. The God who loves the weak and the needy. And you can almost hear his people. David, listen, we understand that there's no salvation in princes and in people. But this king that God said would come, where is he? Where is this salvation? Where is this one that you promised? No salvation is found in any son or daughter born of Adam. Yep. So who's going to come save us? Not a single one of us would have been thinking that God himself was going to put on flesh. God was not just a present help in earthly trial for Israel. He didn't just promise to be with us so that we'd have a comfortable life or that they would have a good life. For all the instances that I've just described, that David is recounting, they all point to God's faithfulness to his covenant of redemption. They point us to Christ who is our hope. The promised Messiah, God the Son, Christ Jesus, the Son of Man born outside of Adam, conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. The King of glory was born in an animal stable. Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal word that created the skies, laid swaddled up in Mary's arms, crying. This doesn't really sound like this king who's going to come break the prisoners free. But Jesus shows up on the scene. 
And he walks into Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4. He walks into the temple and he grabs the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim in the year, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 21, it says, he he sat down and then he said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, who in their right mind would have thought that this was going to be God's plan of redemption, that the Son of God would come down to earth, put on flesh and blood, live under the law, bleed and die for his people and rise again from the dead. Right. If he would have came and just helped people who are in a bad spot, they're still going to die. If he would have came and did all the miracles that he did, he helped people, he fed people, he gave sight to the blind, all these physical miracles. Raised Lazarus from the dead, all for what? They all still died and all still guilty of not being holy. God showed love to the righteous by fulfilling all righteousness for them in Christ. And then he crushed him for our iniquity. You are counted righteous and forgiven of all sin on account of his work, not yours. We have received this redemption in Christ by faith, all of grace, not by works. God is a present recreator, vindicator, provider, deliverer, and lover of his people. Oppressed by Satan's rule, we were children of darkness, but now we are children of the light. Starved, we were dead hungry for true life. The nourisher of our souls came to earth, the bread of life, broken, our Lord Jesus. Prisoners of death and our corrupt desires. But we were given eternal life and set free from the law of sin and death. Blind to the truth and unable to understand it. Our eyes have been opened and we've been given the knowledge and the revelation of Christ Jesus. Bowed down and burdened by the heaviness of the law because we can't keep it. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. With no purpose to life, we have hope for forever and reason to live today. Like lost pilgrims and widows and the fatherless, we need help and can do nothing for ourselves. Jesus has done it all. He didn't come to make us strong. He came to make us his own. Our claim to fame isn't that we're no longer weak, brothers and sisters, but that the God of Jacob loves us. Every one of us who trusts in Christ are still weak and needy in this life. But because of Christ, we're no longer wicked. We will no longer be brought to ruin. The end of verse 9 says that the, the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. He brought our wickedness to ruin in Christ Jesus. We're going to be with him forever. We won't be ruined. Amen. Let us not be afraid of the tyranny of any oppressor. All the powers of hell and this earth that come against us, Christ's bride, it's going to come against the glory of King Jesus. So we need not fear anything that would come against us. And finally, brothers and sisters, to end, to conclude our time together, considering verse 10, we pray, 
Oh, Lord, that you are God. We praise you that you are our God and that you will reign forever. Hallelujah. This is in verse 10. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Church, Christ's kingdom is going to continue through all revelations of time, through this earth and into eternity. Despite the darkness that reigns over this earth and what corruption clothes the powers that are in authority even now, Christ is king and his kingdom will reign in endless glory. It won't be taken by an invader. No one is behind Christ to receive it as a successor. While the world stands and after it ends, Christ will be the king of his kingdom. He is returning with glory. And as we get ready to participate in this Lord's Supper, it's not only our assurance for justification and sanctification, but it's our assurance of the hope of glory that is to come. There is endless restoring love at the table of the Lord. We repent and we return to our Father daily to feast in His abundance. He's prided Himself in being the God of the weak so that He could be our strength. He's chosen to show His strength in this time through the weakness of His people. We boast in the Lord. And as soon as He comes and He's bringing all wickedness to ruin, His kingdom, which is now spiritual and of faith, will be sight. It will be sight. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, come, for you are our God and you will reign forever. We hope in God because he keeps faith forever. And so let's pray. Father, we pray that our souls would praise you. We pray that our ultimate security and confidence would never be put in people or ourselves. We pray that our hope would remain in you, Lord, and that we would be affected in many ways by who you are and what you've done for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have made us your own, that you are our God and you will reign forever. Lord, we're thankful to be your children, that you beg us to come to you as Father. Lord, so we ask for the faith to believe that. And as we come to this table, we pray that you would sustain us, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our all-sufficient Savior. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.